And let's shift into scripture reading, which will be from Esther chapter 1, verse 1 through 12. This is the word of God. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. All that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple materials to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in the high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the peoples and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. This is the word of God. All right. Thank you, Daniel. That's an excellent job of reading, man. You did. I could tell. All those names and all those precious stones. Good job, man. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is John, uh, associate pastor here. We are starting a new series. So at the beginning of the year, we finished, uh, I can't remember exactly how many weeks we did, but we talked about the awe of God. And uh, we're, we're launching into a new series through the book of Esther, okay? Um, pastor Sangmin, man, he does everything. He does the artwork. Um, and uh, I think hopefully, you know, we, we actually even get an idea of what this kind of the symbolism of this poster is as we move through the book, okay? But for today, uh, let me give you a roadmap as we, as we move into, as we launch into this uh, sermon series. I'm going to give you guys a roadmap. I think it is. It is it's helpful for you. It's helpful for me. Um, but today, as we start, I want to give us an overview, like a bigger, kind of a bigger perspective, a bigger view of the book of Esther. And then we're going to, from the bigger view, we're going to kind of move in. We'll look at chapter one, and then we'll even move in closer uh, as today as I want to try to point us to Jesus through this passage. Amen? All right, so first thing, the overview of the book of Esther. Now, why are we doing this sermon series? Uh, there are five reasons, okay? I've, I've pulled this out from a, from a resource called Nine Marks. Uh, but there are five reasons, these are really good reasons why we're going to 
go through the book of Esther. The first reason, Esther, the book of Esther, it teaches us how to read all of God's word. Now, I don't want to go like, through this in too much detail. Bullet points are good enough. But for this first one, you may, you may not know, but Esther is famously uh, known as one of the only two. Oh, man, this is a hard, hard, hard sentence I just said. Esther is one of only two books in the entire Bible where God is never mentioned. The other book, I think, is, is, is uh, <sighs> Song of Songs. Am I right? I'm not sure. Holy moly. I forgot. Okay, but as a narrative, and Esther is a, is a narrative account of, of the people of God, of, of Israel, this is the only, for sure, only narrative where God is never mentioned. In fact, like people don't do any, like there's no indication of, prayer or worship or praise or any, like any of this, the normal things that happen, there's actually only one, like one account where Esther uh, calls her people to fast. And then another instance where the enemy of the Jews like, talks about them as being a people that are different. So famously, it is a book that does not mention God, and yet we're going to see that God is ever-present. And if we can do that, if we can read Esther and see and recognize God's hand and God's movement, then that will actually help us to read all of God's word in that way. Cool? So the second reason that we are choosing to go through the book of Esther is Esther teaches us to trust in God's promises. And I really want to hope to to hammer in on that today. Number three, Esther encourages confidence in our salvation because, man, we need need that confidence, don't we? Because we have this confidence because of God's grace, because of God's faithfulness. Amen? And number four, Esther provokes laughter at hubris. Hubris means like excessive pride or self-confidence. This book shows us that, we, man, we can laugh at that kind of thing in other people, but also like in us, okay? So those are, uh, those are the five uh, reasons that we're going Five good reasons why we're going to study through Esther. Now, let me take us through three key themes. (laughs) Three key themes that are within the entire book, the arc of the story of Esther. Now, part of the reason that the book of Esther was written is actually to explain one of the Jewish celebrations. There was a Feast of Purim. Can you guys say that? The Feast of Purim. Now, this was a really like a, a, an exuberant celebration that has been going on for thousands of years now, and the book of Esther explains what, like what it is that they're celebrating, okay? But not only that, not only that, the, the, the themes that we can see throughout this story, number one is divine providence. That's the faithfulness of God, even though he's never mentioned, that we can see hints of his presence through circumstances. And you know, like, if you guys like action movies, um, I don't know why, it, it feels like it's, it usually happens in action movies where like, there's just like the whole movie, the whole outcome of the movie like really hinges on one, on one special circumstance. And it's, and it's almost as though like the, the main character, the hero is like, that circumstance happened because of, you know, the, the hero. Those, those kind of movies, they annoy me. Like when I think about it, I was like, man, this guy like, acting like he saved the world, but it, like, it was just this one random chance that happened that, that helped him to 
become successful. Now, there's a bunch of circumstances in the book of Esther, but you know the, the difference between like this Hollywood movie where it's the hero's glory versus the book of Esther is we know that God is present. We know that God is faithful. We know his promises. And so even though his name is never mentioned, we know and we could see divine providence. Number two, human responsibility. There's all these different decisions and actions that the people, the characters in the story make, and we see that their decisions matter. Human responsibility. And the third one, again, is an echo of the thing that we saw earlier, is we see the absurdity of wickedness. In this story, there's a, there's a classic case of the enemy falling into his own trap, like Wiley Coyote. You guys remember Wiley Coyote? Anyone remember that guy? He would build up this trap to try to catch Roadrunner, and every time, Wiley Coyote, he's the one that gets hit. Classic example. The arrogance of the world are not nearly as strong as they think they are. And we see that in this story. So, big picture of this story. It's full of spoiler alerts because we didn't read it here today. That's okay, though, because the story is still, is still good. But the big picture, it's almost like a Cinderella story. <laughs> almost like a Cinderella story where Esther, she's this beautiful girl. She's this Jewish orphan. Um, who was raised and cared for by her cousin, Mordecai. You know, and you can kind of imagine she's, she's an orphan in, in, a, in a big sense, like marginalized in that society. And she becomes the queen of Persia. It's the most powerful, uh, you know, empire at the time. She becomes the queen. But instead of evil stepsisters, uh, there are the king's council, some of whom we read about in the passage today. Instead of uh, an evil stepmother, there is Haman, who is the king's right-hand man. He's the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of Mordecai, her, her cousin. Uh, and the king is hardly a Prince Charming. But also the plot is, is actually quite different because Esther, the queen, like the story as it, as it goes through, the, the, the story is not all about her, uh, you know, her, her, her trying to find true love and to live happily ever after. That's, that's, not, that's, not, the, that's not the theme or the, the storyline. But actually, Esther comes to find and realize that she comes into this position of power as the queen of Persia, for, t for, for such a time as this, to save her people from genocide at the hands of Haman. So it's not really like Cinderella at all, is it? <laughs> but, you know, the ESV study Bible, it, it, does, it does say it like this. It says that the, the book of Esther, the story of Esther, is a story par excellence because it has virtually every ingredient of what people throughout the ages love most about stories. There's a beautiful and courageous heroine. There is some sense of romantic love. There's a, there's a love thread that moves throughout. There is dire threat to the quote-unquote good guys. There is a thoroughly evil villain. There's suspense. There is dramatic irony. The story is full of these ironic twists. 
and there's a sudden reversal of action, there's poetic justice, there is a happy ending. This is the story that we are diving into, guys. So that was big picture. Cool? So as we go through the series, we're going to hit on these things, okay? Uh, through the narrative. And for today, we just read chapter 1, right? We just read, uh, Daniel, he read just like the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 1. In the entire chapter, there are only 20, oh, shoot, 21 or 22 verses. But let's take a moment, let's focus in a little bit on chapter 1. So we saw there's a king, the king of Persia, King Xerxes. I checked through, I was trying to look and matching up. You guys remember the movie 300? There's, there's the king of Persia, Xerxes. Like, maybe it's the same guy, but, you know, the history narration of 300 is going this way, and then Book of Esther is a different way. But, so we have Xerxes, and he throws a party. He throws a massive party. I think it said a seven-day party. And his purpose the purpose of this party is that King Xerxes, he's, he's the king of this huge empire. Huge empire, and there's, different, there's all these different cultures like within his one kingdom. And he, as king, he has to try to maintain control. He has to try to maintain allegiance. And, and as king, they're never satisfied with just what they got, right? They, they always have to go to battle and get more. So King Xerxes, he's preparing to go to battle. And he's throwing this party because he wants to make sure that he has the perfect allegiance of all of his people. Okay, so he's gathered up all of his people, gathered up all of his uh, uh, various subjects from, from the different parts of his kingdom, and he throws this massive party to show them how awesome he is. Okay, this is, this is his objective. Throws a huge party to show all of them Yes, I'm the king. I am worthy of your obedience. I'm worthy of your allegiance. Let's go to war together, okay? And what we also saw as we read, what, what Daniel read for us today, is excessive drinking. There was like no, uh, no limits. Everyone could just drink however and whatever they wanted. Now, this is an interesting point because according to ancient historians, uh, Excessive drinking was actually an essential part of their, uh, of their, uh, their war council because they believed that intoxication brought them closer to the spiritual world. Now, this is not a green light for us here to like go out and, and get slammed, okay? Just saying, that's what it was. <laughs> so they're throwing this party all the people are there. All the men are partying in one area. All the women with Queen Vashti are partying in another area. And the king, it says that he's been drinking, he's having a good time, and he thinks to himself, hey, let me show off my wife. Hey, eunuchs, go get the queen. Tell her to put on her crown and get over here. And the queen, she refuses. She refuses. Now, during the king's effort to try to solidify allegiance from all of these, from all these different parts of the kingdom, like this was a big deal. This was a huge cause for embarrassment. Why should he have their allegiance when his own wife is not even listening to him, right? And so 
King Xerxes is embarrassed, and he is enraged, furious, burning with anger. So then what happened? So the king, he gathered up his wise men. He gathered up his council, his trusted advisors, the, the seven princes of Persia and Medes. This is like his, his homies, I guess. <laughs> and the king asks them, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes. Now notice he speaks in third person. That's what powerful people do, right? Now one of the wise men, he takes what the queen did and he takes it personally. Memukan, he replies in the presence of the king and everyone. He says, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Now Vashti has assumed that she has this kind of influence, and I guess she probably did. She's the queen. Now, one commentator suggests that the advisors are expressing their own sexual anxieties. They're they're fearful that there's going to be some kind of a strike, a sexual strike by all of the women of Persia. And so, Memukan says, this is the decree that you must make. Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, Let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest." And the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memukan proposed. So the queen, Queen Vashti, she is stripped of her position, and Memukan suggests that she should be replaced by someone better, presumably more obedient. And just another note, it's, it says here irrevocable, that the, that the law was irrevocable. Like, apparently, there's no, there's no extra biblical evidence that suggests that that kind of law was in place or that that, that kind of law was practiced, uh, that, that laws written were irrevocable. But some say that either the author added that to, as an emphasis to show like, that this was a big deal, that this was like something that they were you know, like saying, this is... A big deal. (laughs) Um, And also like to try to heighten the the dramatic tension in the story. But what it also does is it reveals, I think in in a really important way, the pretentiousness of the king and of the nobles. 
that they think that because they say something, because they speak something into law, that it is as it will be. That they can control the fate of all things, right? There's this pretentiousness, this idea that they have this grand sovereignty. Now I also want to just a couple other comments about this section, okay? And a little bit kind of about the book as a whole. Now some commentators, some preachers, some, some critics, uh, they, they take this section and they make, they, they, they take an exemplary approach. What does that mean? Like an example, like as though these people and these actions are examples to either be followed or to not follow, okay? There are some commentators, some preachers, you might have heard it preached in the past, like, okay, so for example, number one, like Vashti should not have done this, or Vashti should have done this. Now, some have used this passage and and Queen Vashti's decision in not coming to the king. Some have used it as evidence supporting the biblical the, the biblical principle that wives should submit to their husbands. You guys, we know this principle, right? That wives should submit to their husbands. And if you don't, look what happened to Vashti. Now there's, I don't know if you've ever heard that sermon or that teaching. And then there are others who have praised Vashti for her boldness to stand against the oppression, against the sex objectification of man, who have praised Vashti for her her declaration that she owns her body. Now, personally, I read that, I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 maybe. But others have taken this idea and they've taken like 100 steps further And while hailing Vashti for her boldness, people have criticized Esther. Now, we haven't met her yet, but Esther, it's the book of Esther. She's kind of the the, the main character here, right? Aside from God. (laughs) And people have criticized Vashti, excuse me, people have criticized Esther for taking Vashti's position and in the ways that she took her position as the queen. They have described these certain, certain kind of, there's a certain flavor, I want to say, a certain flavor of feminine, um, feminist uh, commentators who take this view and who have described Esther as the stereotypical woman in a man's world who uses her beauty to please men in power. Okay? Now I want to tell you, these are just notes, okay? Just notes, kind of side notes a little bit. I want to tell you that none of those things are the author's intent. The author is not interested in sexism, nor is the author exemplifying one woman over the other. Vashti versus Esther. The author is not doing that. There is actually no indication either of an evaluation of of that decision, of, of what Vashti did. It's just... Just stating it, this is what happened. So what we should be able to gather from this context, however, there are things that we should gather from this context. 
Now first, to touch on the Vashti versus Esther thing and that criticism against Esther. I want to I clarify. The book does not teach or prescribe compliance to uh, uh, compliance with patriarchy. Okay, that's, not the, that's not the main point, as some have criticized. But rather, what it does do, it teaches that even a stereotypical woman in a world full of laughably stereotypical males is capable of facing the ultimate national crisis and diverting the royal power. Like, that's unquestionable. So although Esther might start as a kind of a stereotype, she develops into a leader. And within her community, like, her actions become the authority of which the Feast of Purim is based, which still stands today, 2,000 years. Okay, the other thing, now regarding the biblical principle of wives submitting to husbands, that is not what is illustrated here. Why not? Okay, so I think it's important, okay? So that's why we're spending time doing this. Why not? Because the context of biblical, the, the context of the biblical principle of wives submitting to husbands, there's a very specific context. It says wives, in the New Testament, Paul, he teaches, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as the husband loves and sacrifices himself as Christ did for the church. So there's a lot of as's there. Wives, submit to your husband as to the church in the same way that the husbands are supposed to live and sacrifice and love the wife in the same way that Christ loves the church. That's not what we're seeing here, right? If a man has to command a woman to respect him, that respect doesn't really, isn't really worth much, right? If a man has to create a royal edict or else, that's not really, that's not really respect, is it? And so the king's decree that every man should be ruler over his own household, it's not an affirmation of patriarchy. It's actually, it's a cynical commentary of the character of leadership of Persia. That they thought that they could exercise power, and often powers do, often leaders do this, but they exercise power with brute force fueled by the need to control. And this is just a really, really good quote to just kind of hammer this in. Let me explain why this is so important, because in a society, can you guys read this? Is it okay? In a society where domestic violence pervades even Christian homes, the church must not allow its biblical teaching on marriage to be misunderstood as a doctrine of male dominance that justifies the abuse of domestic power or that tones down the husband's responsibility for self-sacrifice for the good of the wife. 
It is not about absolute headship. Now for some men with a domineering temperament, like if the church were to say this and do this, it becomes a license to assert themselves and to demand obedience, right? Including conjugal submission, even if it means resorting to violence. This is so important. Now, all these quotes are from the NIV application commentary, but man, these are so important, okay? So if you ever hear it preached again in the future, wives, submit to your husbands, or else, Vashti, like, man, block your ears, okay? That's not what's being taught here. For Xerxes and for his royal court, demanding that respect and demanding that obedience through the misuse of their power was proof that they were not worthy to wield that power. Okay? So I want to say, like, these are definitely things to take to heart. They're kind of side things, but I felt that they were worth spending time and talking about, okay? So definitely take those to heart, but let's, let's move back. Let's go back to the story. So we're going back into the story now. The stage is set. In, in Esther chapter 1, the stage is set because now in chapter 2, we're going to meet Esther. We're going to meet her cousin slash guardian Mordecai, and then we're going to see her made queen of Persia. So the stage is set. Now I want to focus in even a little bit more into the first part of chapter 1. And as we do that, I want to try to point us to Jesus as we do that. Now we've looked at the big summary of the story. We've looked at the events of chapter 1. And now I want us to focus even more into something that we probably didn't notice as Daniel read for us this afternoon. Our scripture reading for today was the first 12, 12 verses, 11 verses. Man, I'm confusing myself. 12 verses. Thank you, man. Our reading today was the first 12 verses. Of those, the first seven verses spoke in elaborate detail to describe King Persia's the king of Persia's riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. That's verse four. It spent a lot of time, a lot of words to describe the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. You guys know what pomp means? Someone who's pompous, irritatingly grand and self-important boastful, vain, okay? Now, what we may not realize as we read this, as we hear this, but what the original listeners to the book of Esther, what they knew, see, this book of Esther, it opens up with the greatness of King Xerxes. But that would have been in stark contrast to their present tense reality. When, when by the time the Israelites heard this story, they knew that King Xerxes had already lost a great battle. He went to battle with Greece and he lost. And he lost everything. He lost all of his riches. No glory, no splendor, no more pomp, no more greatness. Do you get what I'm saying? So the original listeners, they're hearing this, they already know. Oh man, there's, there's a twist. 
There's irony in this, spending so much time talking about, look at this glory, oh, all this good stuff. But we already know he lost it all. It's a foreshadowing of the reverse of his fortune. But not only that, the elaborate description, there's all of this detail of the palace is actually really unusual in scripture. I forgot I'm allowed to move this off. Oh man, I kept fixing the mask. The elaborate description of the palace, it's unusual in biblical narrative. Verses six and seven, they describe, right, all of this stuff. White and blue linen, cords of white linen, purple, silver, all this stuff, porphyry, marble, all this stuff. uh, Wine is served in golden goblets, each one different, each one distinct. Like this is to to illustrate the, 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 the massive wealth and splendor. This description is very unique in the biblical narrative. And the original listeners, they would be like, hey, this reminds me of something. Because the only other time that the scripture talks in great detail like this is when the Bible talks about the tabernacle and the temple. And those are in Exodus and in, and in 1 Kings. So the people would have been like, oh, that's interesting. They would have thought about the temple. They would have thought about the tabernacle. And then they would have been reminded of how the Lord dedicated the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 5, the Lord says, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But see, the reality is that the listeners of Esther, the original listeners, they already knew too there's no one seated at the throne anymore. Because they were living in the fulfillment of the other side of the promise. Because God continues, he says, but if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you, then I will cut off Israel from the land. I will reject this temple. And all who pass by will be appalled and they will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And the people will answer, because they have forsaken their Lord, their God. And then the people became captive to a pagan king like King Xerxes. So Esther is being read in light of Xerxes' defeat this description of great splendor that's in the beginning of the chapter of his palace, it foreshadows a reversal of fortune. But the Jews themselves, they also experienced a humiliating reversal of fortune themselves. And that was what destroyed their temple and made them exiles in a foreign land and subjects to a foreign king. And yet... Because of the covenant that God made with his people, the ultimate destiny of God's people was secure. Despite this great power and pomp of the Persian Empire, it can never frustrate the plan and promise of God. 
It was never God's plan to destroy his people. The plan and the promise was to make them a great nation. That never changed. To make them a great nation, to make them a blessing to all nations, and through them to raise up a king who has no end. And this is not fulfilled in Esther, but it points forward through Esther's people to Jesus. See, Jesus fulfilled all of it. He fulfilled all of the demands and all of the promises of the covenant that God had made with his people. And Jesus is the man promised in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 5. You shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. This is Jesus. And Jesus is seated and ruling over an eternal dynasty. Now, you guys have heard this, this quote probably, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? We can see it in scripture. We can see it in the newspaper. We're seeing it right now as we think about Russia and Ukraine. Power, it tends, it, like, it corrupts. No matter what the intention was in the beginning, you can't get that power. You want to keep that power and then like terrible, terrible things. We see that over and over, every culture. Because the reality is that only a king with perfect character is worthy of absolute power. Only a perfect king can wield that power with true law and justice. Jesus is this king. He is king of the universe. What kind of king is he, guys? What kind of king is he? Now, to to his disciples, Jesus said, whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And Jesus himself, though being in very nature God, took the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And his coronation, his rising to glory, we say this, we say this a lot, but you gotta see this. His coronation, his rising to, to glory is when he is nailed to the cross and the cross being risen, his body bleeding for us. And because he is the perfect king of perfect character and perfect obedience to God the Father, he rose back to life, amen? And so now he is seated on his eternal throne in eternal glory at the right hand of God. And Jesus, he laughs at the impotence of all these kings who think that they're so powerful the most powerful, the most pompous of nations. Jesus can sit on his throne and laugh at them because from his place, his his eternal throne, we know, we know the end of the story. All of these kings and all of their pomp and all of their power, they're nothing. Their power, their riches, their militaries, they're nothing. And we worship 
the king of the universe, Jesus Messiah, who is worthy of it all. Now, friends, if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you've not come to him in repentance for your sins, if he is not your personal Lord and Savior, then I'll invite you, receive him today. If you would say with your lips and believe in your heart, confess, Jesus, I confess my sins before you. I, 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 I deserve punishment, but instead you give me grace. I receive your grace. Thank you for dying for me. Be my Lord and Savior. Receive me, for I am yours. Amen. Church, can I have us go into a time of prayer? Um, I've got kind of three prayer points for us. And worship team, you guys can come back up here. The first prayer point is this call to be worthy of the personal power that each of us wields. That we would be worthy of it by by holding it, by exercising it in the way that Jesus wields his. Whether you're a husband or a wife or a spiritual leader here in the church or community groups, you might be a CEO, a CFO, partner, manager, worker, teacher, designer, engineer, you might be an officer or enlisted, head of state, popular student at school, whatever it is, whatever power that you have, can we be called to be worthy of this power by wielding this power as Jesus does? Can we dedicate our power to his glory? Second prayer point, you know, as we talk about nations and power and control and again, Russia and Ukraine, we must continue to pray. Do not give up praying. Let us pray for God's supernatural protection for the crushing of the pride and the plans of evil men. Let us pray for the church to shine brightly amidst the crisis. Let us continue to pray for Russia. And the last thing as we are entering, we've already entered the season of Lent. You might not be fully familiar with it, but Lent is a time to chip away at the superficial, materialistic shell of our lives. Is there pomp in your life? Chip away at it. Do not find yourself in that irony of investing so much time and affection to this stuff when it will all soon be gone. Let us take this downward journey of identifying with Jesus in his poverty, his suffering, humility, his death into his resurrection and life. We thank you, God, for the fulfillment of your promise in Christ. Jesus, you are the king of the universe for all eternity. You are worthy. 
You are worthy. You are worthy. With absolute power, Jesus gave his life for us, never grasping for any kind of pomp, but he came to serve and he gave his life as a ransom. And through his sacrifice, Jesus brought to completion God's promise to rescue his people. And so we celebrate in communion. In partaking in the Lord's table, we celebrate Jesus. We declare his life, his death, his resurrection, his kingship. This is his table, and by amazing grace, we are invited. So come, let us partake. Would you take the bread?